This is a Dice of Brussels. In this episode, uh, you're going to hear uh, a recording of a press conference done by the UK in a Changing Europe programme, which I'm part of, uh, which was held at King's College London on the 27th of uh, June, so uh, the Monday after the vote. You're going to hear um, four people uh, presenting, uh, so in order you're going to hear uh, John Curtis from Strathclyde. You're going to hear Matt Goodwin from Kent. Then uh, Sarah Hagerman from LSE. And then myself. Uh, and then the second half of the recording is the questions and answers. So uh, journalists are asking uh, uh, different questions. In this, it's really just kind of where we were on Monday morning. Uh, just kind of give you a sense of the kinds of issues that are coming up, a bit of a retrospective on uh, the campaigning, uh, on the uh, voting, um, and starting to think about where we're heading. So it kind of gives a useful sort of summary. So to kick us off, uh, the first voice you're going to hear is from the director of the UK and Changing Europe programme, uh, Anna Menon. So here we are. Morning, everyone. I hope you've had a very peaceful and restful weekend. Uh, what we want to do today is basically, I think, slightly pick over the bones of uh, what happened last week, and I just want to lay out for you the sorts of things that we're going to be doing over the weeks and months to come. And it seems to me that the result next week basically affects every aspect of our lives, uh, and there are certain things we're planning to focus on. Uh, John and Matthew are going to talk to you a little bit, I think, about the actual polling and the referendum itself. Uh, but for us as a project, the kinds of things that we're going to be focusing on, uh, this is not an exhaustive list, are firstly the politics of all this, which our political system being reshaped in front of our very eyes. Secondly, is there's a small matter of our relationship with the European Union, which has almost become incidental in the headlines over the weekend, but which is obviously fundamental. And this is two things. I mean, this is one process. Uh, we're going to get people to write on what the negotiations might look like, how they might proceed, and also, which is often forgotten in this country, the fact that the views of other countries might be important in the negotiation uh, process. Uh, and also possible outcomes. We've got two or three things being posted in the next few days on our blog on you know, what sort of deals are possible, what sort of deals are feasible, what sort of deals characterise international organisations outside of Europe, because actually places, uh, organisations like ASEAN and Mercosur provide some quite useful uh, guides about what you can do in this sort of situation. Uh, we've got a blog coming out today, I hope, on the economics of all this and what it might mean and how the reality of the situation compares to some of the predictions made before the vote. Uh, we're also hoping to get a flurry of things from our colleagues based in Scotland and Cardiff about what this means for the United Kingdom, uh, what it means for our territorial settlement, uh, what truth, if any, there are in the various conflicting claims about which parliament has a right to veto who, uh, and so on and so forth. I'll also be spending a lot of time wondering whether I have to cancel my summer holiday at the end of July uh, in all of this. But without further ado, I'm going to leave it to my colleagues to sort of give you brief introductions, then we're happy to take your questions thereafter. John, do you want to kick us off? Okay. Um, 
as soon as I've been handed the uh, difficult button of the polls. Um, I mean, the, I mean, a couple of things to say. I mean, referendums are in general difficult for the polling industry. Um, pollsters, in part, learn, learn from their mistakes. Um, they have an experience of what has or hasn't worked at previous general elections. So when they're polling in a general election, they can draw on that experience in order to decide how to both collect and to report their data. Um, a referendum is a one-off event which, uh, that, for which that experience is not necessarily relevant. That's number one. Number two, of course, is that this was a referendum that cut across the traditional lines of British politics. Most British general elections are essentially an argument between left and right, between those who want the government to be a bit bigger and those who want the government to be a bit smaller. And you know, we weren't arguing about the size of government, we were arguing about the relationship between government and an intergovernmental um, organisation. And the underlying dimension, of course, in uh, this referendum was essentially a uh, argument between social liberals and social conservatives. This is the second dimension of politics, between liberals and authoritarians. Social liberals versus social conservatives, largely because of uh, issues such as immigration and identity tend to focus on that dimension rather than the left-right dimension. And the truth is that you know, because British politics tends to be dominated by left-right rather than issues of social liberalism versus social conservatism, um, the polling industry uh, is not necessarily kind of geared up to uh, measure that dimension particularly well. So there was quite, in the end, quite a lively debate inside the polling industry and an increasing uh, interest in um, measuring the level of educational attainment of the people who are appearing in opinion polls. Now, the point is because, you know, with left-right politics, that's not terribly relevant. Opinion polls were not necessarily geared up to routinely collecting information about levels of educational attainment. Um, that was something they gradually had to get into during the course of the campaign. Um, so that's just an indication of how this particular referendum potentially caused them difficulties. Beyond that, of course, there was the classic divergence between online and phone polls, which was again an indication that um, this was a referendum that was causing the polling industry difficulty in terms of coming up with accurate estimates of vote choice. So um, that's backdrop as to why this is going to be difficult. How did it turn out? Well, it turned out in the end, uh, there are basically eight companies that did opinion polls that can be regarded as final opinion polls, i.e. <coughs> their field work ended no more than four days before polling day. And on average, they said, if, once you take out the don't knows, it was going to be, uh, uh, yes, uh, going to remain at 52 and leave at 48. Not that all of the polls pointed towards um, Remain winning. There were two polls, one from TNS and one from, uh, uh, from Opinion, that called it 51-49 for leave, and Salvation called it a 50-50 shot. But, you know, pollsters in the end would admit to you that while some of them can claim that the result is within their margin of error, the actual result's within their margin of error, we should expect um, uh, the polls, some polls to underestimate the leave position, some overestimate them. They're basically all, to some degree, um, underestimating. So to that extent, at least, you know, the polling industry has, as it were, another reason for, 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 for looking at itself. Now, that said, however, um, I think if you were following the polls closely, and, and certainly as sadly and anorakly as I was, um, I think you would have not taken 
the, such an optimistic view from their perspective that the markets took. I think in part what happened was that the markets, uh, many a pro-Europe supporter, possibly David Cameron's pollster himself, we'll come back to that, that they were all inclined to believe the phone polls that told them that the Remain side were ahead and to disbelieve the internet polls, which never, ever consistently put the Remain side anything more than 50%. And you know, there was a lively argument about which was right and which was wrong, etc. The truth which was never actually resolved, some reason to believe that the, result, the truth might be between the two, but that therefore you could not simply discount the evidence of a whole body of a set of opinion polls that were suggesting it was a very close contest. And I think the truth is the markets in partly were blinded by, as is so often in life, people selectively perceiving the information that's consistent with what they would like to be true and ignoring the information that was inconsistent with what they'd be true. So part of the reason why people's perceptions of the polls, when they think the polls are wrong, is that there is something to it, but it's frankly exaggerated by selective reporting and uh, perception. There is, however, one other thing um, to um, be aware of, which um, I eventually posted at five o'clock on the Thursday the 23rd, although I'd also already pointed to this in previous blogs on my um, What UK Thinks website. That is that you know, one of the other problems facing the industry was, well, hang on, what's the turnout going to be? How far is there going to be differential turnout? And secondly, what do we do about the don't knows? Now, again, this is where not having previous experience uh, makes life more difficult. Now, to cut a long story short, if you take the eight final opinion polls, no less than five of them changed the way in which they reported or weighted or filtered their data as compared with what they were doing earlier in the campaign in such a way as to boost the level of remain, estimated remain support. And in fact, if you go back somewhat earlier in the, in the, in the, um, in the uh, referendum um, uh, campaign, two or three weeks before, again, there was another spate of changes to methodology which again tended to put remain above. If you actually stripped out the impact of the methodological changes, from what was going on in the opinion polls and, you, and, and then tried to estimate what had actually happened during the referendum campaign since May 27, since we entered the official election period, you basically discovered that on average there was a five point swing to leave. So as I wrote at, on before the ballot papers were ever opened, it was perfectly clear once you looked at the opinion polls closely that the leave side had won the campaign. They might still lose the war, but they had clearly won the campaign. And I think there are, there's evidence in the opinion polls as to why that happened, which I'll, I'll, I'll allude to briefly in a moment. So again, looking at the polls closely, you see what's going on. So that almost undoubtedly, I think one of the things the pollsters will have to go back to is, well, hang on, did we in fact make the wrong decisions about uh, how to wait and filter our data? Was there a risk that perhaps they also were caught up in the zeitgeist of, oh, surely, possibly, the people of Britain in the end can't possibly vote to leave, can they surely? Question mark. You know, was, were, were they also sucked into that uh, narrative? And certainly that, you know, that's going to be one area um, for them to look at. Now, um, indeed, certainly if you, if you kind of take that minus five, right, 
and apply it to where the opinion polls were at before May 27, while the phone polls were at 50-50. So if you took five of them, you'd say it was 55-45 for leave. And the phone polls were at 55-45, take five off that, they were 50-50. And we did indeed end up between the two. So you can see how the movement in the opinion polls, as opposed to the levels they were reporting at the end, gave you a pretty good clue that this was looking like a very tough contest indeed. Then, as I suggested, there was plenty of evidence inside the opinion polls to indicate why the Remain campaign was struggling. Um, let me give you three points. The first is that the Leave side identified a problem that the public agreed was a problem and offered a solution. In other words, a clear majority of people felt that immigration into the UK is currently too high and that if we left the United Kingdom, as a result, immigration would be lower. So there's a, the Leave side were, off, were identifying a problem and offering a solution. We can argue about whether or not that solution will work and its merits and all the rest of it, but that's very clearly where the public were at. In contrast, while it's true that a plurality of people, though it was never as many people as who were concerned about immigration, a plurality of people agreed that the UK economy would suffer if um, the UK uh, left the European Union. It was not the case that a majority of people, or even a plurality of people, felt that the UK economy would be better if we remained. So the only thing that remained cyber offering is that basically don't be daft enough to take the, the, the opportunity to vote leave that the Prime Minister has given you because frankly uh, that's disaster but actually we don't have anything to offer you on the positive side. That strikes me as a fundamental weakness that the Remain side should have done much more about saying how the renegotiation that the Prime Minister had achieved in the middle of February would actually enable the UK economy to prosper in a way that is not hitherto done and that was not done. Um, the second problem then, of course, is that if you are going to focus on a very heavily negative message, it is rather useful if people do actually believe your headline messages. And the truth is that the Remain side's headline messages were met with increasing incredulity. The 4,300 quid by 2030, worse off by 2030, was just not believed. George Osborne's claim, which we've now discovered, was indeed crying wolf in much the same way as the Prime Minister's claim that um, he would invoke Article 50 straight away, also proved to be crying wolf, that he would have an emergency budget straight away in order to increase taxes and reduce spending, while well, 60 Tory MPs didn't believe, let alone anybody else. And that again seriously under undermined uh, the credibility of uh, the Remain case. In contrast, the Leave side had two really strong cards. The first was the 350 million quid. Actually, people believed that actually we were, um, uh, it was costing us 350 million quid. And while you can argue about the veracity of that figure, and I think in truth it's not, a f it's not a question of fact, it's a question of interpretation. I suspect that every single time the Remain side raised this issue and said, Boris, take that number off your bus, it should be 250 million quid. The reaction of most Leave voters was, you mean to say we spend two, we, take, we give the EU 250 million quid? That's 250 million quid too much. And I think the, 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 the Remain campaign made a fundamental mistake in focusing what was, you know, in contrast to 
4,300 quid by 2030, which was the consequence of macroeconomic modeling that nobody could understand. A very, very simple piece of fiscal arithmetic. What is our obligation to the European Union? Well, it's 350 million quid, and yes, we get some of it back. It's extraordinarily simple. Right. So that's um, the first thing. Had. The second thing, of course, which the Leave side had was a very clear and very popular strap line. I doubtless you all got extraordinarily bored when every response to every single question in every television debate, the answer from the Leave side was always concluded with, and vote and take back control by voting leave on the 23rd of June. But we know from looking at ORB's polling in particular, who, who, who tapped this, that that message about take control was very popular. In contrast, the Remain side did not have a clear and consistent strap line to kind of, at the end of the day, say to people, there were various things about, you know, we're not quitters, we're, we're, we're fighters, etc., etc. but it wasn't anything like as consistent or as clear, not least, of course, because at the end of the day, one of the things that we discovered is that the differences inside the Remain campaign about what arguments to put forward were probably, in the end, more serious than those on, on the Leave side. At the end of the day, you know, Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon's, uh, or Caroline Lucas's view of why we should be inside Europe was very different from the view being put forward by Amber Rudd, or indeed, again, different from the view being put forward by Angela Eagle. Um, and therefore, there wasn't a consistent message Whereas although the Leave side were arguing with each other about well, how, much, how, how much should we play what is obviously a strong card, uh, it, the fact that the idea of take control in a sense was something they could all unite behind and was you know, sufficiently ambiguous that anybody could invest all their hopes and aspirations into it um, and it was just clearly a much more effective uh, campaign line than the, anything the Remain side came up with. Thanks John. Matt, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, John's talked mainly about the polls and the campaign. If I sort of take a step back and uh, offer some thoughts on the actual uh, on, on on the results and perhaps where that where I think that came from, um, and a useful starting point perhaps is the UK um, in a changing Europe uh, breakfast briefing, which was in May or possibly April, the first one at Chatham House, which I think some of you were some of you were at and. Um, John was also speaking at that as well. And at that briefing, we outlined uh, the plausible path to Brexit, uh, citing the example of the 2015 general election, and noting how, you know, in hindsight, that particular result now will make sense when you look at you know, Miliband's ratings and economic competence and so on. Um, but there was, there was a very clear, uh, a very plausible, and um, uh, as I was hinting quite loudly, a very likely uh, path to Brexit that was anchored not so much in what what the noise, uh, if you like, of, of the immediate campaign, but, but some very deep-rooted social divisions within Britain. And I'm stating the obvious when I say that this referendum has thrown full light on uh, divides within British society, divides that run along social class, that run along generation, uh, and also uh, geography. But as the results came in, um, in the early hours of Friday morning, um, they gave full expression to those social divides in Britain. The fact that of the top five uh, areas for Brexit, the median income was around 18,000 quid. In the top five areas for Remain, it was around 35,000. Um, Brexit was strongest in areas that were heavily white, where average levels of education were very low. And, you know, 
lots of the same communities that we spent most of 2014, 2015 talking about with the rise of the UK Independence Party, which had cultivated lots of those areas um, economically left behind and, as John said, socially conservative, uh, where voters feel culturally under threat from EU globalisation and free movement. In short, voters who have not been winning uh, from European integration and globalisation and took this opportunity to express, uh, to express uh, that view. And in contrast, areas where Remain was strongest, of course, as we would expect going into the result, lots of London areas, um, Scotland, um, but, but turnout in many of those areas really letting Remain down. I mean, I find it, for example, rather funny to observe that um, of the of the top five areas today where support for a second referendum is strongest, for example, Hackney and Camden, they were also in the top 10% of areas for having the lowest turnout at the first referendum. Um, so there was a real uh, problem um, within some of those remain, uh, what would have been remain, remain heartlands um, on turnout. But I think also, um, in terms of political geography, one of the other things that we saw was very strong support, not just for, um, not just for, um, not just among Labour voters, because that particular aspect can be overplayed a bit, but in Labour-held areas uh, for uh, Brexit. And this again was an extension of what we'd seen from twenty really from 2010 onwards. I mean, if you wanted, you could tell a longer story. And, and that story would, you know, I was watching Peter Mandelson walk around sort of College Green the day after. And in a sense, this story does begin with new labor <coughs> in a way. In that from 1997 onwards, uh, between 97 and 2001, you saw a steady drift away from the political process um, by working class uh, voters, very anxious over immigration and Europe, very dissatisfied with political elites. From 2004, with the accession, Central and East European states, that was really given new momentum, which in some particularly northern communities led to the short-lived British National Party, um, but from there onwards led increasingly to either apathy among uh, working class economically disaffected voters, or led some of those voters to um, turn to the Conservative Party in 2010, um, but from thereafter uh, to the UK Independence Party. Um, in very large numbers and of course we've had that endless debate about the challenges that that posed for the Labour Party um, and that challenge again was given full expression uh, in the results. And yesterday I tweeted out a chart that it was a quite crude chart that I did over the weekend but support for Brexit in, in, in Labour held areas and um, what was quite revealing was just the extent of support for Brexit in areas like Dudley, Hartlepool, Solihull, Burnley, Ashfield, Mansfield, lots of it, former industrial uh, declining, disadvantaged uh, areas where voters not only rejected uh, the official government line on, on the referendum, but more fundamentally rejected uh, Jeremy Corbyn's position. And it's quite ironic, of all of the political leaders from the main parties, on a personal basis, Jeremy Corbyn was most in touch with where the public mood was at this referendum. Unfortunately, he was not able to sort of give, give full expression to his personal opinions on Europe. Now, had he done so, um, there's a case to be made for, for him actually 
perhaps uh, resonating a little stronger with some of uh, these working class <coughs> voters in more northern areas. Um, but 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 unfortunately unfortunately he didn't. So we're left with a scenario where you know Britain is still very much fractured by class, um, you know, by geography uh, and by by generation. And I think it's important to remember that those underlying um, divides are just as evident in many other Western European and North American democracies. None, none of this is particularly unique um, to Britain, um, and none of this is particularly unique to the Labour Party. I mean, you know, what we're seeing within the Labour movement at the moment is, is a crisis that is also facing social democrats across Europe, and we will revisit the conversation during the French elections next year and during the German elections and during the Dutch elections where now I think, you know, for the European Union at least, this is very much, um, this is a worst case scenario with Wilders being easily in number one in the Netherlands, with latest polling in France suggesting Marine Le Pen will easily be in the second round, and with uh, the polling in Germany suggesting that the AFD will likely break through uh, to the national level. Now, what does all of this mean? Briefly, uh, what happens now? Having talked with some people on the Eurosceptic side over the weekend, it's quite clear that there is a very strong appetite at the UKIP end of the spectrum to remain organised and in place while the negotiations take, take place. They simply do not trust what they would refer to as the Daniel Hannan School of Euroscepticism which is one that they would argue is at ease with free movement and free market economics. There is now a sort of interesting debate on the radical right in Britain about trying to communicate something different to Labour areas, which you would have seen on Question Time yesterday with Paul Nuttall saying, you know, what about a sort of more protectionist line for Labour areas? Um, and what about actually sort of more forcefully going after Labour voters? I think probably UKIP is overplaying their potential perhaps now in a post-referendum scenario. But if we, enter, um, uh, if we enter a phase now where voters are not given fundamental reform of free movement, then you might as well get a big canister of gasoline and throw it all over that UKIP fire. Because that is primarily why people voted for Brexit. Um, it's not about sovereignty, partly wrapped up in that. It's not about democratic reform. They voted for Brexit because they want less immigration and they do not want free movement. So I think the Eurosceptics and sort of Douglas Carswell over the weekend was saying uh, to me, absolutely, they'll deliver an Australian-based point system. That is still fundamentally different from what people like Daniel Hannan are saying quite publicly, which is that immigration reform will not be at the front and centre, uh, possibly. So that is why UKIP will be... Uh, um, or claiming that they will be hanging together until 2020. And potentially, of course, if we have another general election, um, then the Labour Party may well find that the second-place UKIP candidates in 44 Labour-held constituencies may well be trying to um, stage something a bit more impressive at Jeremy Corbyn's expense. Thanks, Matt. I noticed Dan Hannan's taking a month off Twitter post-referendum, which quite interesting. Okay, so I'll pick up on um, sort of the implications for Europe more broadly and a bit about the negotiations that are now going to take place in Brussels. <coughs> um, as Matt has just pointed out, 
the divisions we've seen uh, come up during the referendum and with the results, uh, the divisions we can also recognize in a lot of the European countries that are right now uh, having to come up with some, some answers rather quickly. A couple of months ago, I was very worried, and I've written about this, about what kind of contagion effect we could see from the referendum and whether we would in fact see referenda being called very quickly in a number of other countries. Um, we've seen those calls made, but I think the re reactions over the weekend make it look less likely that the referenda will actually take place, um, but I would expect the, the issue to not go away though. I think that it's more likely that it will play into domestic politics and general elections in a number of key countries. So I think that the issue is still very uh, serious and very present in uh, key member states in Europe, but I think that it, it is less likely that we are now going to see a number of referenda being held uh, on membership. So the countries I had um, thought would, of course, be, be the candidates for such referenda were the Netherlands, Hungary, uh, in Scandinavia, certainly Denmark, possibly Sweden, um, and the messages that come from Poland are very mixed. So none of these countries would necessarily call referenda <coughs> on an in-out of membership, but they would, they have, in fact, all stated that they would want to see where the UK was going with its uh, relationship with Europe and whether to follow. Now, I think that the reactions we've seen from governments in those countries and from the debates in between the parties is that um, first of all, the uh, reactions in the markets have given people, uh, um, sharpened people's minds that, of course, there are real consequences and this is a serious matter. It's not um, an easy political argument that can be thrown around without consequences. So um, the contagion effect is not so much the referenda likelihood, um, but rather how um, the results will play into domestic politics. Uh, we saw yesterday, of course, uh, elections in <coughs> Spain. Um, I wouldn't say that this result have necessarily played strongly into the, the dynamics in the Spanish elections, but there is, there could be uh, some weight given to um, the um, debate in the Netherlands, in Scandinavia, etc., um, coming up. Of course, the one key election we want to keep an eye on is what's going to happen in France exactly as, as uh, uh, Matt is pointing out. Now, I know from work with people in Brussels over the weekend that, in fact, um, I find Brussels very well prepared, more prepared than any teams uh, here on the Leave side. Um, I think they are taking it very seriously, of course, there needs to be some strong, quick messages that come out in both today and Tuesday and Wednesday. But I think that they find that um, there is a, a unified thinking about uh, this needs to be addressed collectively and that we are not in the immediate term at least likely to see um, a heterogeneous uh, response from the governments. 
I think that there will be um, an emphasis on staying united. Now, of course, um, it's interesting to note that it's only a handful of um, uh, member state leaders that met yesterday and today. So we are, of course, seeing core Europe coming together to, to give a response. And the response, as I've been told, is that um, <coughs> this uh, negotiation is in the hands of the EU. Um, they uh, respect the request to not start Article 50, uh, trigger Article 50 um, this week with uh, Cameron having been invited to give uh, a statement on Tuesday uh, at the dinner at the summit, but um, it is not a formal notification that will start the negotiation process. So in that respect, there's been a um, signal that we um, want to see what your response is and we will take it from there. At the same time, I also know that there are a couple of issues that they want to give strong weight in these negotiations and that um, that's where the EU have the, the strong hand. Um, so um, we, I don't know any details, of course, what will come out um, on Tuesday and, and, and especially Wednesday where Cameron is not going to take part of the negotiations. But um, there will be very strong messages sent to the markets about how to go ahead with um, Eurozone challenges, but also uh, regarding the democratic uh, legitimacy and, and, and the way forward for Europe. Now, I want to point out that I think that the EU in, in that way, um, this might bring a momentum for, for perhaps new steps to be made, but also new messages to be sent to the public. But I would also warn the EU leaders of making the same mistake as has been done in this debate, which is to try and blame domestic issues on EU level, <coughs> um, the EU level situation. So of course, issues of immigration, issues of financial and economic uh, instability are things that need to be tackled collectively. But the issues that people care about are also very much um, those topics, but in a domestic context where it's the governments that have the um, governance power and not the, the EU institutions. So we are at a situation right now where there needs to be a very strong collective message coming from Brussels on, a, on, on the main topics we've seen dominate the debate here, but where the EU will fail if it doesn't also make clear what its dis decision power is in those areas compared to the national governments. Now, I think I'll just um, one last point here is that um, I also hope that we are going to see um, a very clear, um, clear thinking about what the core and periphery in Europe now will look like because the UK having left there are a number of countries um, that will be without a strong Eurozone voice, without some of the issues that had been negotiated in February, and that they will need want to see um, 
implemented or, or be considered as part of their membership um, preferences. And I think that um, those are issues to, to be tackled very quickly as well. Um, I know that there's been some grundles in a couple of capitals that they're not taking part in the informal discussions today. Um, and um, that's of course important to show the effectiveness and, the, and the, the strong messages from the core of Europe. But there are still 27 member states and they all need to be part of that club. Thanks, Sarah. <coughs> so um, I think for me the, the, the key message from this is the tension between short-term and long-term uh, perspectives. That the key message that uh, both sides in the campaign were pursuing was winning the vote rather than having a, a broader discussion about the UK's uh, direction, the kind of uh, country that we wanted to be, the kind of society we wanted to have. And we can see the consequences of that in the campaign itself and also in, in where we are today. Um, and where we are today, I should bear in mind that I haven't looked at Twitter for 20 minutes, so we may be somewhere else. Um, the, the campaign, as I think John rightly said, um, I think really reflects a common problem in European-related referendums, which is a degree of complacency by uh, the governmental side. Um, each time that there was some small swing in uh, polling that seemed to, to give Remain uh, uh, some kind of advantage, you could see visibly a, an easing up by uh, those campaigners, particularly from government posts, uh, that uh, I think within uh, the broader machinery of government, uh, there was a feeling that people would see sense. So it's very much the Tony Blair line that uh, people will come round and uh, they'll know which side uh, their bread is buttered on. And I think that really did feed into the, uh, the Leave campaign's strong card, which was that uh, anti-elitist, uh, why should we listen to experts? Because you should listen to experts, you're here. Um, that, that, that resonance, the broader issue about disconnection that, that, that Matthew's just talked about, uh, that many people feel that the system doesn't work for them, I think was played uh, very effectively. Um, where we are now, I think, reflects that failure to have the broader discussion that the UK doesn't know quite what it wants. It knows what it doesn't want, uh, if we take the referendum result in one level. But more precisely, the, the British government, as much as it exists uh, at the moment, uh, clearly doesn't have a, uh, a direction of travel. Now, what, what's telling here is that David Cameron clearly... Uh, does care about his legacy and that by submitting his resignation as quickly as he did closed off Article 50 so that there was at least some breathing space. If he had been feeling particularly vindictive to uh, colleagues, uh, former colleagues, um, he could have uh, hung on until the European Council made his formal notification and then resigned uh, and then just left everyone else uh, to deal with the mess. I think, given that he hasn't done that, I think that does reflect that he doesn't want to be remembered uh, for completely messing things up, just for <laughs> almost completely messing things up uh, on that. Um, in terms of the Article 50 and the kind of discussions we've been hearing a lot of over the weekend, I can't see any politically viable way that Article 50 cannot be uh, begun, that notification 
will have to take place. Um, I've written a piece which, looking at Ben, will go up on the website for now, uh, which looks at some different options of how you might avoid uh, triggering Article 50. Uh, they became more and more outlandish, which I partly put down to a lack of sleep, um, but also just because the kinds of things that need to happen uh, require a lot of people to change their minds in the public and in Westminster. Uh, they require a lot of things to uh, happen which really are inconceivable. And if we want to talk about that, we can talk about that. Um, the flip side of that is also that I think there's been a degree of complacency in other European capitals. Whilst Brussels, uh, and particularly the Commission, has been uh, quietly preparing for this situation, other member states, I think, did hope that, again, the UK wouldn't follow through uh, on this. Uh, and so the delay until October actually does give them a useful window of opportunity, uh, gives them time to work out quite what uh, the most productive way forward. And, and probably in the longer run of the Article 50 negotiations, having this pause until October means that uh, at the point the notification comes, you would expect the European Council can give both a process and a package, an initial outline of what a package looks like to the UK to say this is what we are prepared to offer. Now, in broad terms, I think there are going to be two options. Um, the simpler uh, and probably quicker way of doing it is to work from membership backwards, to say, we take you out of decision-making, we uh, remove your, your voting rights, and then we decide what we want to take away from existing membership. The difference from other third-party relations uh, that uh, the UK faces, and we've talked about this at various points, uh, is that instead of it, the UK being a country coming in closer to the U EU, it's the UK coming out and moving away. So it's already compliant with EU legislation. So the, the degree of uh, transition is transition out rather than transition in. So in simple terms, you could envisage that potentially you have some kind of framework agreement that says we start from membership minus, so as it was in membership, minus the voting rights, um, minus some budgetary uh, contribution, and then we have an agreed process where we can, uh, over time, potentially move the UK out. That if the UK notifies that it wants to stop free movements, for example, it will have these consequences, and then if everyone agrees, we can do that. And then you can attach budgetary contributions to that kind of model. The problem with that model is uh, precisely the one that Matthew's talked about, which is the free movement issue, that there clearly is a constituency politically <coughs> within the UK that is going to want to see limits on free movement. Clearly, the EU is going to be very unwilling indeed to give a, a concession on that while still maintaining free movements in other areas of the single market. Uh, both for the contagion issues uh, and simply just because uh, it's, it undermines the, the package uh, that the EU has had uh, throughout its history. So that leads then potentially to a second model, which is we start at the other end of the scheme, which says the UK and the EU have no relationship, that we go back to uh, sort of the WTO model uh, in that language of last week, and then we see what the member states are prepared to give the uh, UK. That will be a much more complicated, uh, a much longer process. It basically takes the UK out and then brings them back in, which uh, pragmatically looks like a much more difficult uh, uh, kind of solution. And given, I think, that 
one of the key interests that other member states have, which is to get this done quickly so that the EU can carry on focusing on its other uh, woes, I think that, that looks uh, kind of problematic. So there's a, a decision to be made by the UK government uh, about where they are heading on free movement, and that leads to a concomitant response by the EU. Last point is I think we also need to keep an eye on the European Parliament. I think the European Parliament has been one of the most vociferous uh, critics of uh, what has happened. Martin Schulz has not been a happy man, even by Martin Schulz standards. <laughs> um, remember that Article 50 requires <coughs> European Parliament approval. Um, I would expect that the European Parliament will be a sticking point at some point. That member states are probably likely to be more accommodating of the uh, UK <coughs> than uh, the Parliament is. Uh, and I, I think that there will be some very difficult and awkward negotiations that have to go on there. The, the, the European Parliament sees itself as the, the keeper of the spirit of uh, European integration, regardless of whether we think that's uh, under threat or not, it will fight that very hard. I'll stop there. Thank you. I do wonder whether one of the implications of the four-month wait is that the other member states can present us with a fait accompli in October. That is to say, they use those four months while we're messing about finding a government to draft something, put it on the table to our new Prime Minister and say, here's the deal we're offering, take it or leave it. Uh, I wonder if they're organised enough to manage that, but it does strike me as being a potential problem. Uh, okay, shall we take some questions, then people will need to talk to you one-on-one -on -one if you want. Yeah. Um, you kind of touched on this. There's a lot of noise at the moment about a second referendum, you know, the petition and so on. Do you see any practical way that that could come about? And I'm not too familiar, but I've been told that there is a history of second referenda in Europe where the first, <laughs> the first one didn't <laughs> people wanted. Do you see a practical I mean, you talked about options being outlandish. What do you see as the least outlandish way it might happen? I'm just going through the list that I made, I wrote up, and actually the least outlandish is still ridiculously outlandish. Um, I don't think the second this petition has any conceivable chance of being taken forward. Um, even if you take out the uh, the spurious signatories, it's a substantial number of people, but it is clearly far off uh, the number of people who voted in the referendum uh, altogether and who voted to leave. And I I can't see how Parliament can. Uh, in any way, politically, even now constitutionally, and there was a good piece I think by uh, Vernon uh, I saw this morning that was saying that you know if essentially this <coughs> underlines that parliamentary sovereignty doesn't actually exist, that it's popular sovereignty just like uh, most other mm. places now. So I think that 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 petition it might be discussed, but parliamentarians can't practically uh, pursue that. I, I think the only th way I, I could see it happening is that uh, I think I called it a hanging over the abyss option which is over the summer things get so terrible uh, and so many people get cold feet and not just cold feet but you know really anxious about this that whoever becomes the new Tory party leader says I have to think about the country and this is clearly the wrong choice so I will engineer a motion of my confidence we are uh, go to uh, a snap election, and we probably then have to have a second referendum there. But I th the reason other countries have had second referenda was that that was ratification of a treaty. Uh, this is not ratification of a treaty, this is about exit. And I. And they were able to renegotiate part of the agreements. Yeah. So there, is, yeah. there is nothing, there's nothing that's going to happen 
There's not going to be a, another set of negotiations from the EU. Voters who were pissed off uh, first time round are going to be even more pissed off next time round. Um, and it, it looks largely like a travesty of the democratic process. So there's, I, Boris is lucky, but he is not that lucky. Can, can I just add to that? Um, if you actually look at the wording of the petition, it would have ruled, uh, would, would require a second referendum if he voted 52 to 48 in favour of Remain. The petition is ancient. It's been up on it for ages. It was an argument about whether or not there should be thresholds. Um, it, but quite what we were meant to do with a second referendum, we only voted 52 to 48 for Remain. I'm not quite mm. sure. Uh, it just, I mean, irrespective of how it comes about, I think the only trigger that could... Um, result in a second referendum is that if indeed we have a general election, which may not be because Boris deliberately triggers it, it may be that the current government collapses, it loses a vote of confidence uh, during the course of the, of the next few months. Um, and that at that election, a party or parties that are committed to holding a second referendum wins the election. Now, the Liberal Democrats, for insofar as interest, have already committed themselves to including that in the next manifesto. I suspect, however, the difficulty for the Labour Party is aware of the demography of the referendum vote, that he won't necessarily wish to commit itself to such a path um, because it's aware of how potentially divisive it would be. But that, but that, that would be what would be uh, what you'd have to watch. Um, uh, so yeah, I think it's basically if we get a second, if we get an election, which you, before actually we get to the end of the, the, the withdrawal process. Um, and we get a second referendum as a result of that that, that changed people's minds. Um, but unless we engineer, unless an, an election either is engineered or accidentally happens, it's un, uh, I think we're, we're basically we the decisions we've made. Just so Ben knows what what, can you introduce yourselves before you ask your question? Um, Craig Woodhouse uh, from the Sun, a um, couple of questions actually, don't mind. Can you talk us through the uh, relationship between the European Parliament and Article 50? I forget where they have a, a say. Is it right at the end after it has been agreed, or what's they? They will have to approve the deal along with the the twenty seven member states. And what happens if they don't? Then there's no, no deal. deal. And if and if, then we, uh, what, if, so we get, if there's no deal, if then we get, what? if we get to the end of the two years after notification, so that's uh, presumably October twenty eighteen, then if there's no agreement to extend uh, the negotiation period, then it just lapses and the UK leaves and we're in a WTO type scenario. So it ratifies the deal, not the exit? That, so they it can't block the, the, uh, the, the European Parliament can't block the exit as well? No. They can only block yeah. the... No. Yeah. The, on, the only grey area... Well, one of the grey areas of Article 50 is what happens if the UK, in John's scenario, decides that it doesn't want to withdraw anymore? It, it's not entirely clear. I, the House of Lords' position was that they thought that if everyone agreed that we were stopping Article 50 because the UK changed its mind, then we would just stop and we'd go back to where we were before. I don't know whether we'll be testing that. Um, secondly, do you think that negotiations will take place in public, as it were, or will it be more like TDIP? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yeah, it will not be in public. And in fact, like, like that's an important I point for the sovereignty argument of Parliament, because Parliament, ironically, will probably find that it has less sovereignty in all of this than in any kind of scrutiny and involvement it has had in deciding EU legislation. Because right now, what will happen is heads of states will get an overall 
deal together. All the details of that will require an enormous legal expertise and fiddling for quite a while, and Parliament will only be involved at last stages of all of that. So Parliament right now, and the scrutiny committees in Parliament, they will certainly find that they uh, will have a hard time keeping up with what kind of agreements the UK uh, can, can have, and we are likely to see backbenchers with wh whoever ends up leading all of this, um, feeling frustrated that they are not uh, included and, and feeling that Parliament is setting the tone. So you can see Bill Cash complaining about the process of exit now. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, finally, for all of you, when do you think we'll actually leave? Well, I that yeah. is sort of linked to a question that I was going to ask as well, which was... Um, I, I, yeah, I know, but I, <laughs> are we not being a bit optimistic on the timing as well? Because if, if, if for argument's sake, we assume that uh, the new Conservative Party leader is in place by the time of the conference, and you believe reports over the weekend that Boris Johnson will then trigger a general election, and then you have a campaign, and then you have an election, then conceivably nothing will happen until the start. Yeah, at yeah. the earliest. But there's also a difference between when exit is officially the reality and when we have a deal for the new relationship. Because there, there's a lot that needs to happen for, the, for a new relationship to be in place and that is likely to take many, many years. Like trade agreements to replace existing trade agreements that are automatic through the EU at the moment, that in itself you know, will be six, eight years or so. Um, but with the, for, the, for, the, for the UK's exit, official exit, not having any seat in the council, not having any presence at Europe, European summits, not having any presence in the European Parliament, that reality is going to come much quicker. In fact, you know, we're going to hear it this week, um, what kind of representation the UK will have in Brussels, if at all. It's made by saying that you'll see this at European Councils anyway, won't yeah. you? And it, in European terms, 2019 is a convenient time for the UK to, to formally leave because it's the end of European Parliament, European Parliament well, cycle, it's the end of the uh, financial framework uh, and cycle. But yeah. again, you know, we've already had the British Commissioner step down. Does he get replaced? Does he not get replaced? Who decides? What happens, actually, probably more pressingly, about the British uh, Advocate General of the European Court? who is deep in yeah. some really quite high-profile cases. Does she step down now? She so I mean, that, that she doesn't. That was the impression I got from talking to people that there also officials in commission in senior places, they are, of course, there for the time being. But they, there is uncertainty over how long that time is. Yeah. Florentin Colomb, Le Figaro. How do you deal with the constitutional problem of the British Parliament in all this, because today 450 MPs are Remainers, but it's quite likely that the balance will be more or less the same after a new election, unless they deselect everyone to put a leader instead. So what is this current or new parliament expected to, uh, what, what sort of say are they expected to have in all this process? And on the Article 50 issue, isn't there a possibility that they don't ratify the notification of Article 50, uh, whomever... It's not actually 
they, they can once the UK is notified. Okay. That's and that's it. there's no, that's there's no yeah. specification yeah. about what the internal procedure in the UK is for notification, but yeah. government uh, prime minister would be within their powers uh, for external relations to mm -hmm. to make that notification. Parliament largely, as Sarah's saying, has to live with it and it has to work around the, the realities of the situation. So, again, it, you know, it's like the second referendum option. It, it's not really conceivable that Parliament mm. goes against it, unless there's a lot of politicians who want to spend more time with their families. Mm. No, so it's just quickly as well, by the time we get to a general election, if one were to happen, say, at the end of this year, um, at that point, I mean, the Conservative MPs who are Remain may well find that it is very much in their strategic interests to campaign instead on a good deal for Britain type yeah, platform, exactly. especially given that you know, in many conservative seats in southern England, there's a good you know, 10 to 20 percent of the vote there that's going to be hoovered up from otherwise would be UKIP voters, right? Um, and I imagine a lot of those strategic conservatives, now that they've got what they want, will then drift back. Uh, to share case our Dutch journalist, and Matthew, in one of the previous briefings, you said that Leave was not, not very well organised in the way they were campaigning on the ground. So, so uh, less urban areas, not targeting their own backyard. Mm. Mm. So, presumably, that didn't make any impact at all. Well, I mean, I mean it it depends how much weight you put on the campaign, right? I mean, did did Brexit win because Vote Leave ran a stellar campaign? Right? Uh, or did Brexit win because Vote Leave essentially did what they needed to do, but more important were the underlying social divides that were, were essentially mobilised through the campaign? Uh, and I, my, my, my view would be probably the latter. I think there were some good, there were some good um, easy, as John said, some very digestible lines that Vote Leave came up with, and the shift on immigration late, late on, I think, helped them. Um, but, but I think primarily this was a vote that was driven by far deeper... Uh, currents within British politics that have been building for uh, many years. So it's certainly the case that actually on the ground, uh, at least in terms of the publicly available data that we have, Remain was um, was clearly targeting the big urban diverse cities, right? Now, but that raises a question of, well, and I think at the briefing that we had before, uh, it might have been John, I can't remember somebody who was perhaps hinting at this question was, does that actually mean though that that will make a difference. And when you saw cities like Sheffield going to leave and Birmingham going um, to leave and uh, other areas that I know that they targeted in the southeast going to leave, then, well, holding more events doesn't necessarily mean you're winning over more voters or you're, you're galvanising more voters. They clearly had a turnout problem in some areas of the country. That much is true. I mean, I was sat looking at the data at 5pm on the Thursday as the torrential rain outside the London window came tumbling down, and I just did ask a colleague at that point, I know you're going to say weather doesn't make a difference, uh, but I did <laughs> ask a colleague at that point, well, the middle class professionals are getting <coughs> off work now. I wonder how many of them fancy going to a polling station. But it was sunny in Scotland on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I grant you when it's sunny in Scotland, you might think it's something better to do, but... You know it's the end of the world, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a question, Simon? Um, so you said there was no idea of, of what the country should look like. Listen to all of you, the country will be on a sort of pause at least for two months until there is a new Prime Minister and then there will be all these discussions about how to leave and what is the best deal. What will happen to 
normal Britain, all these divisions still exist, need to be solved. How, if you, if the whole government apparatus is well, doing they haven't been solved over the past twenty odd years. They're not. If they haven't been solved with this, which they haven't, they're not going to be solved in the foreseeable future. There are deep divisions here. I think what's really interesting is the way since Friday morning has been the attempt to appropriate the result as this is what this means, you know, Britons want this or Britons want that. What's clear is there are some very different discourses and debates that are going on and one of the real frustrations, and it was the point I started with, is that Leave and Remain were talking about totally different things. They were talking to very different constituencies because they were trying to mobilise those constituencies. There was no discussion, no interaction, uh, and there still isn't. That they, they are talking past each other um, and, you know, I, you know, certainly if I look at my Facebook timeline, you know, liberal cries of anguish at how could this happen and what can we do? Um, and uh, yeah, I think it was uh, Rob Ford who was uh, saying, well, now you know what it's like to be a UKIP voter where the majority don't talk about things that you don't, you know, think are important or that you think are, they're wrong about. So I think this will be a persistent problem. It speaks to, to bigger social issues uh, and that anti-globalisation or you know winners and losers kind of transition that's going to be a long-term process. I think one of the interesting <coughs> things to watch, let's assume for the moment it is a Boris Johnson government, is to what extent shall we say it decides to become a Tory government rather than a Conservative government? A government that is actually rather more concerned about social relations and less concerned about libertarian economics. Certainly one of the very striking things about the Leave campaign was the quite remarkable ability of some Conservative politicians to understand the character of the coalition they had behind them and to use language that was deliberately designed to appeal to working class, less well off. I mean, Andrea Lestrom in particular, I mean, you know, there was this former yeah. city person, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So they very, very clearly understood the nature of their constituency and they framed their appeal around it. So it'll be fascinating to see whether or not we end up with a new Tory administration that actually is much less pro-free market and much more about concerned about the social relationships in our society. Um, than we've been used to since Margaret Thatcher. On Simon's point about the sort of the, the sort of mourning of the liberal middle class, I don't know if any of you noticed, but the BBC did a complete step change between uh, Friday and Saturday in terms of its tone. Because watching the BBC on Friday, it was as if the Queen had died. Yeah. Uh, this sort of sombre tone, as if you know the world had ended. And they had a series of internal meetings at which it was decided that, given that half the country was actually having street parties about this they should try and reflect the public better. And uh, a sort of missive went out on Saturday that we need to sort of smile a bit more on air. Which they duly did. I agree from my Swedish journalist. I would like your reaction on the piece that Boris Johnson and the Telegraph when sort of he touched upon the relationship between UK and Europe moving forward. What's your reaction on that? I think it's great he's got time to write columns. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's his cake plot position again that he's pro, pro cake, pro eating it, it, it totally fails to reflect the reality of international negotiations which is this idea of reciprocity that he can't have free movement uh, and have uh, free movement for Britons and not have free mm. movement for EU nationals so I, 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 I 
you know, we're talking about a Boris Johnson premiership. I'm actually not sure that that is what will happen. Mm. I think he's. I think one of the things I've underestimated in this campaign is the degree of buyer's remorse that you're seeing from Leave leaders. I, you know, I, I would think someone like Theresa May might be a more <coughs> likely leader of, of the, the Tory Party, given that she she can, you know, she might be able to navigate that a bit better. But I think, but Boris is still working through quite how he's going to handle this because I'm not sure he expected to be in this position. Just, just briefly, um, I, I would slightly push back on that and say the next leader has to be a, an unambiguous outer. Yeah. Um, with, you know, and I think Theresa May will not be rewarded by Conservative Party members who would look at her and think, you never put your colours on the mask. Uh, I think that will hurt her. But just an insight from, some, from, from the campaign and interviewing some people who were dealing with the Johnson camp, which I think is quite revealing, and I won't tell you what, from what side they were dealing with him, I, um, but they said, you know, we had 18 meetings with Boris Johnson and his team throughout the campaign. I've never met anybody as indecisive as Boris Johnson, sure. and uh, somebody who uh, essentially has to focus group almost every possible decision. Uh, and that was very uh, revealing, as, you know, consistent with some other stuff. So, well, so, so will he be the Gordon Brown as a Conservative Party? <laughs> well, I think just to also give one answer, so there's been, you know, from Brussels and from a lot of the capitals, there's also been this um, surprise how arrogant the message has been from the UK in terms of well, we can get whatever we, we want, really. And I think it's going to reveal itself very quickly, especially after Wednesday, that you know, the ball is really not in the UK's court on this. So it, it might be that there's been a signal now that we will accept that Article 50 is not triggered until later on, but Article 50 is the one we are following. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And then when it comes to actually, because the, in a month's time, two months' time, when we will have seen the, the extent of the market reactions and how uh, jobs will be leaving the UK, I think that the tone will change from here as well, that, okay, we will sit down and, and discuss what the terms will be, and we obviously not the ones to dictate here from London. And the tone from, from Boris has all along been as if the UK was simply going to go and make a series of demands and everyone will agree to them, and that, is is not the case. John. Uh, yes, John Peter. <coughs> uh, actually, Sarah, just touched on one of my questions. <coughs> if if in October or after a general election, whoever it is says, I still don't want to trigger trigger Article 50, but I'd like to have an informal negotiation about what what we might get, will the response simply be no no negotiation at all unless you? So, so there are two things that have to be weighed up here. Of course, the economic interest in, from the from Europe, to, with regards to the UK, but the governments have a much more um, current issue on their mind, which is the domestic politics. And I am convinced that none of them will see it in their interest to give the UK an easy ride with this. So, um, because of the complexity. On in all areas around this, also when it comes to migration and refugee situation in Europe, Article 50 has to be the framework in order to give that stability of we know where we are going. And I, I think that the, the UK and whoever ends up advising <coughs> a, a, a new government, they will have to, they will come to terms with that. 
So I would I cannot foresee that Article 50 is in any way um, uh, sort of sides that do something that it, it there will be that will be the path. The question is how also in order to maybe get the unity of the remaining 27 because there are countries that will depend on the UK for a number of reasons Ireland Denmark um, other countries that will that will see that they bilaterally need to have a good relationship with the UK and will speak on their behalf in the negotiations there may be some concessions given but I don't think that there'll be a um, sort of uh, a la carte for, for the UK at all. And, I'm sorry, the uh, second, second question <coughs> I to be clear about is that in a sense there are two separate negotiations. There is Article 50 and there is a trade negotiation. Yeah. They are separate. Yeah, things. they Although, are. I mean, if it was EEA, you could presumably wrap that up inside the Article yeah, 50 well negotiation. But if it's a special trade relationship, it will be handled separately. Yeah. Requiring unanimous approval. Yes, exactly. And yeah. by the national parliaments and by the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. And it will take much and, longer than two years. And, and a, a referendum in the Netherlands. And a referendum in the Netherlands. And it will yeah. take much longer than two years. Absolutely. So what happens if you have Article 50, you get to two years, but you're still having a trade negotiation? Well, then that Article 50 and the exit of the UK will uh, come into effect. <coughs> the trade negotiations can then just continue, because that's a separate issue. But, you, but, but in the, in in the, the interim period, you'll be WTO rules, or well, that that again, that's that's that that needs to be decided. That needs to be agreed. Yeah. And logically, if if things are, if there's a schedule and a process that everyone's playing in good, taking in good faith, then logically you would extend yeah. the process and you'd say to avoid ambiguity, we, yeah. we do it this way because the complexities of doing it a different way would be so much more. I mean, Don, one thing I did hear a couple of people mention would be that the easy solution would be to say, okay, we do the Norway model, mm -hmm. and then we make some adjustments to yeah. that, because then we have something to go with, okay. and then we can sort of change some issues. Of course, they are, you know, they, they are paying into the budget. They, they are, they are um, in fact, transposing EU law, the quickest of all <laughs> EU member states, um, and they are, um, of course, having to, to no say on, on any of the legislation and free, so movement. And and free, movement. And yeah. free yeah. movement as well. So none of these things might be acceptable in the political debate here, but that might be the framework that is sort of put forward and then with restrictions or adjustments um, suggested along the way. And also, if you, do, if you do an EEA model, does the UK have to apply to rejoin EFTA, in which case you've got to go yeah. through ratification of that as well, negotiation and ratification of that. So that's an additional. Anthony Rupin from BBC News. How did the EU go about preventing the UK from taking over the rotating presidency of the European Union next year? And assuming that we're kicking the Brexit can down the road to October, what does the panel think is going to be this year's summer crisis in the Eurozone? <laughs> <laughs> But the presidency issue is very easy, I think. That we'll just uh, jump to the next country. That'll be a decision on, at the summit, and it's not a big deal. I mean, there's no way that the UK will be granted the presidency. That's, the, uh, yeah. You just shuffle. You shuffle the troika forward. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's actually finally a, a use for the troika. So it make, it does make that a, a bit easier yeah. to do. On the crises, there are three interlinked crises that the EU is facing, and each of those has the potential to resurface 
One is financial, uh, the second is demographic or migration focused, and the third, which is bubbling away under the surface and was reflected in the latest Pew Research data, is a continual erosion of popular support for the entire EU project, something that we often talk about, but I think we underestimate the power of it. I think, you know, actually the referendum last week is a powerful reminder um, of the strength of popular discontent, uh, with not only with the European Union, but with, with migration um, uh, more generally, and a, 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 an angst among voters who do not feel as though they're winning from these processes. Now, within that, does the Turkey deal fall through? What happens with Greece? Uh, what happens now with the contagion effects, which actually are, I think, more real than people give them credit for? It's not the fact that minor parties in countries like, like you know, or not, not national parties in countries like Denmark have, have called for referendums. It's also, you know, Five Star, which has just swept the board in local elections in Italy, wants a referendum on the euro. And Renzi's in big trouble. And I think we'll see those three crises now interlinking, because as the migration routes change and focus increasingly on Italy, you know, I think that's definitely something um, to watch. And there's a referendum in Italy, remember, in the autumn, which could provoke a, a serious crisis if he loses. Yeah. Um, Chloe Farm from Bitsight in Germany, thank you very much for your analysis. Um, I was wondering if the panel could quantify two of the um, divisions that you've mentioned earlier. One is the generational gap. Um, so we know that younger people voted in favor of staying and, and older people voted in favor of leaving. Do we actually have the turnout numbers as well? Um, no? No. no. Um, opinion polls are lousy at doing turnout. Um, uh, Lord Ashcross published data on as indeed of YouGov, as to the division of the vote amongst those who turned out. The, ter the individual level turnout we don't have, it will get collected by, uh, and, you, and you, you need a high quality random probability face-to-face -face sample to get it back. British Social Attitudes, which is going into the field either next week or the week after, will collect off a random probability face-to-face -face sample that information, but ask me after Christmas and I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> I give you a very, I give you a very, don't, pick too many holes in this, John, but very crude but indicative look, and then maybe this will turn out to be wrong, but uh, this was something calculated yesterday. Turnout in the top 10% of areas with the largest number of 18 to 30-year-olds was 69%. Turnout in the top 10% of areas with the largest number of pensioners was 77%. London. That's, that's London, and that's that's the you know I mean, the, most of the places with the highest number of young people is London. Right. Mm. The, the difficulty, of course, is that I mean, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I think it's, it almost undoubtedly will be true that younger people are less likely to turn out. I mean, even with the eighty-five percent turnout in Scotland, younger people were still less likely to turn out. In fact, so you can bet your bottom dollar that that was true. What, of course, we're less clear about is what was the will be the counteracting effect of the fact that people in working class um, occupations are less likely to turn out than those in middle class occupations. So it cuts across. I mean, the difficulty with turnout in London is the register tends to be so inefficient because of the very high mobile population. The turnout in London is always rather low anyway. But, but you know, you can be guaranteed younger people are less likely to turn out in that. You know. And that, frankly, was nothing the main side could do about that. It's just a rule of all elections and all referendums in advanced industrial economics. But could you, you somebody, sorry. 
Was this on that particular? Yeah, oh, sorry. Somebody, I think the BBC or, or Rob Fulton put together this, the 2011 census on top of the turnout. Yes, that's what. And it's you just can. Yeah. Yeah. It's but it's not sure. what we're not answering is the individual level uh, turnout, which John's talking. No, about. There's, a, there's a difference, right? You can you can look at what, all we can do at the moment is look at the relationship between how many young people there were in the council area and what was the turnout. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, okay. We don't know this. Virtually all the places with very young populations are in London, right? Because London's population is, age profile is way younger than any other part of the UK, right? The difference here, however, is that because London also has a very geographically mobile population, its register tends to be relatively inefficient. So, there may, so there's, a, there's a risk in looking at the aggregate data of um, assuming that that's just telling you about young people. That said, I'm suggesting to you, you can safely write that young people are less likely to turn out and vote. But I suspect that given the size of the, of, of the Leave victory, uh, it is, and again, I think somebody's had a go at this, it's basically uh, impossible to, to argue that the reason why the Remain side lost is simply because of differential turnout. Yeah, go ahead, second. Yes, the second question I have is how big is the bias from those really um, We've seen a lot of you know, we read a lot of Twitter messages and we see this petition, but it's to me it's actually very unclear. Are these actually people voted to leave and change their mind? Are these remain people didn't turn out, uh, uh, turn out to vote? And you know, how valid um, is this movement? Well, I, I mean, what is it? Congress had something yesterday. I think seven percent of Leave voters said they regret what they did, and so did four percent of Remain voters. That's right. the, okay. the difference so between that is not statistically, statistically significant, given the nature of the sampling. So, uh, most people are in, most people at the moment at least are happy with what they've done, and very few people want to change their minds. Okay. Whether that be true in three months' time, six months' time, twelve months' time, who knows? Any Actually, um, I mean, now Boris Johnson is obviously on the table for the next um, Conservative leader. But I was wondering, because I hear a lot of anger um, about Boris Johnson's campaign, um, I have not the impression that he's as popular as he has been a few months ago. Is there any you know, data, or do you think He's the only one, because like Theresa May didn't really say a lot in the last couple of months. So it kind of seems that she's maybe a bit more successful with her strategy. Or how do you see no, that's not a sign of success. I mean, you want to come in, but the Theresa May silence is not a sign of success. But who do you think? But, but popular with whom? Are we who, who are we talking about here? Tory MPs. Well, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that. Um, Boris Johnson may not necessarily be the top candidate amongst Tory MPs, but as long as he has to, as long as he's in the top two, then it goes to the membership. And the last time Conservative Home did a poll of the Conservative membership on how they're going to vote in the referendum, it was something like you know two thirds, three quarters are going to vote to leave. Right? You know, I mean, one of the things to realise about all this, I mean, you, you know that classic moment in the House of Commons when there was that, there was that interchange between Cameron and Johnson, and kind of. Cameron was saying, well, look, you know, I have a national interest at heart because, you know, I'm not having to fight a future election. Now, the counterpoint to that was, yes, and this is a man who's lost the connection with his party. And in the end, that's Cameron. Cameron's fundamental problem is that his he left his party behind. Um, the party membership certainly weren't with him. 
And again, for, you know, all the talk about you know, how the Labour Party failed to deliver, the crucial thing to realise is that a majority of Conservative voters voted to leave. And you can look at really, I mean, South Buckinghamshire, right? This is plum Tory territory, voted to leave, right? So, the, so um, it's not just urban working class Northern England that voted to leave. There were, pla there were plum places in the you know, East Dorset, Chichester, all voted for leave. And at the end of the day, I mean, Cameron's fundamental failure was to come up with a renegotiation that convinced his party that the deal was worth it. His parliamentary party split. He failed to take his voters with him. His members are somewhere completely else. It's not surprising that at the end of the day, therefore, a person who's that distance from their party eventually comes a cropper. <clears throat>